Oh, shit! Born with a heart full of neutrality. Their currency is blood. I hear music. Their music human screams. That's how I receive it, too. What makes a man turn neutral? I taped over my Luther Vandross mix. My goodness, what singing group is that? Edible music. I tried to taste it. But it did not work. The gangbang? Just close your eyes, wave your hands side to side, and you'll be just fine. Trust me, you'll fit right in. Heyo, this is Ducky here to welcome you to Genre Neutral, the only podcast dedicated to prospecting gems from the vast and mystical frontier we call music. From Brooklyn bass to Afro-punk, we absorb sound and reverberate only the dopest. Back to you, the listener. Alrighty, this episode I'm at The Barrel Thief with Alan. Hello. Darlene, or Mama Bakes. Hello. And Baby Drums Baker, who is still... Arriving. MIA. Yes. Um, we are uh, enjoying some fine dining and some cocktails. And we're here to talk to Alan about uh, his involvement in the Seattle music scene and his career at the EMP and just his general music knowledge. Very peripheral. Very all peripheral. three stages. Yeah, nice. I know lots of people who know lots more than me. He feels that we should be interviewing somebody else instead. But that's okay. I'm the one who's here. Yeah. I think this is what a great start to a wonderful relationship. <laughs> so, with that said, why don't you tell us a little bit... Well, why don't you tell our audience a little bit about the EMP in general? Because not all our listeners are from Seattle. Oh, right. And well, also, there you go. Um, what you did at the EMP. EMP is now changed to something called Mopop. It started off being the Experience Music Project. It was founded by a Microsoft billionaire, <laughs> and it was a place to put his toys. He loved rock and roll, and he loved uh, buying things, and so he built up this huge collection and had nowhere to put it, and he always envisioned a place designed after Jimi Hendrix, who was one of his heroes. So he had a museum built, and I was working at the Seattle Center, which is where the museum sits, over what used to be a parking lot. And it was 1994, and I got a phone call from somebody who said that they were representing the Vulcan Group, which is Paul Allen's uh, private company, and they wanted to know if uh, they could buy some land at Seattle Center. And I said, well, it's a public park. You're, you can't buy land from a public park. What, what's the purpose? Well, we want to build a museum uh, to house the memorabilia, to remember the name uh, and work of Jimi Hendrix and Northwest Rock and Roll in Chandler. And I said, well, a noble cause, certainly. Definitely. And I said, uh, you should probably uh, talk to uh, the front office. I was going to give him the... Uh, phone number, but before that I said, you know, something that would be kind of cool to house in the Northwest Rock and Roll would be um, all the different versions of Louie Louie. It's kind of the unofficial state song, and everybody did a version, so why not have that? Transferred the phone call away and never heard anything back for many years, and then um, in 1998, the Tacoma Art Museum had a show called... uh, the art of rock and roll, and so it had three different floors. One floor was artists, you know, depictions of their of rock and roll heroes or whatever. And the second floor was rock and rollers who became artists and, and had their, like Grace Slick, for example, she does art, things like that. So the third floor of the museum was dedicated to some of the stuff that was going to go into the new rock and roll museum up in Seattle, which didn't have a name yet. 
And so I went up there, floor after floor, and got up to the third floor. And the first thing I saw was a movie of the Monterey Pop Festival. And there's Jimmy playing the Flower Power guitar, which got smashed. And it was my understanding that once that guitar got smashed, it was lost to history. There was it was gone. That nobody could ever find it. I turned to my left, and there's a case containing a piece of the Flower Power guitar. My nice. jaw hit the floor. And it, one thing after another, I'm looking around, and there's all these holy relics of rock and roll up on this third floor. And I'm going, oh my God, this is going to be a fun museum. And I, in the far corner, there was a uh, like a kiosk with red buttons on it and little telephones. And I got closer to it, and it was all the different versions of Louie Louie. Oh, oh my gosh. <laughs> so the uh, whole representation there, sure enough, ended up being in EMP. Uh, again, I'm working at the Seattle Center, and I get a, a request, uh, you, do you want to join the museum? And this is, they'd broken ground, they were building the museum, it wasn't finished yet, but they were looking for people who wanted to join the museum and who wanted to volunteer. So I did both. I signed up for a, to become a member because I knew what was going in it. And it was some cool stuff. Really yeah. cool stuff. Amazing stuff. Like I say, holy relics of rock and roll. Dozens of them. And yeah, so it sounds like it. It was crazy. And I knew what was going in there. So of course I'm going to join. That's how I learned about it and got thrilled about it and started to go there and started volunteering there. And over the course of the years... Uh, you know, things have ebbed and flowed. There have been uh, great times, especially the first couple of years. And there have been slack times after 9-11, for example. Oh. Um, it, everything went to hell. So the first couple of years were just wonderful. Um, they had a lady named Susie Tennant who was handling um, their uh, booking for rock and roll shows. One of the things that Paul Allen wanted to do was to honor Jimmy's memory of the Sky Church, which would be a place where people could all come and, and be artistic. And so the Sky Church was uh, the place where they had shows. And the people that she brought, because her background was in punk and brunch. Nice. And so she brought people like uh, the Mekongs and X and television. She brought television after 20 years of oh, yeah. being broken up. So that was awesome. And um, I saw Grace Slick there. You can see Grace Slick there. Um, and uh, she also brought Little Milton and a lot of blues people. I saw J.J. Kale there. and uh, So a really great cross-section of music. Every week, the Wallflowers came to play. And, so we had all this music coming in, we had all these different bands, all these wonderful exhibits and panel discussions of, of, for, for the exhibits. So we had these people coming in uh, and then uh, whenever somebody happened to be in town and they happened to be able to corral them, they would have bands come in. So I got to meet Yes, I got to meet uh, Dick Dale, I got to meet all these people who would come through. And so the museum has been a wonderful place for me to meet people of rock and roll. So the uh, EMP, I guess for people who are out of town, is a music museum that rivals the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland. And if you ever wonder why is the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland, it's because they had two or three different choices to pick a place. And they chose Cleveland because 
that's where the first rock and roll show was back in 1952 oh, wow. put on by a Cleveland DJ named Alan Freed who coined the term rock and roll oh. and so there was a big riot at the show um, and it was really really put down and really disparaged however one of the things that EMP does every year is they have something called PopCon, PopCon, popular culture. Yeah. And it's around music and music writers. So all the big time music writers, Grill Market, all of them show up. And so they always do papers. And one year it was the uh, place of, of rock and roll female journalists oh, okay. in rock and roll. And of course, there weren't that many, but one of the first ones was a lady who did the gossip column for for the Cleveland Plain Dealer. And so she went to that show, and her column was very influential. And so that was a... a very a influential from that night? From that night, because yeah. it provided... The newspaper just said there was a riot. That's all it said. Yeah. She said, hey, there was a show, yeah. and these people were there, and this sounded great, and these things happened. Rather than, riot. Yeah. rather than saying there was riot, police came, cracked heads, people arrested and taken away. So she covered <clears throat> the cultural aspect of it, nice. whereas the the it appeared in the police beat page, you know, of the on in section B, whatever. So it it uh, raised some awareness, certainly in Cleveland, about rock and roll. And so that's uh, the first rock and roll show. That I'm, so that's why the, the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is in Cleveland. Of I am so glad you explained that. Because I've always wondered. Because I always thought it would be in Detroit. Because it was Detroit Rock City. You know? like. Well, Detroit didn't start rock and roll. I mean, rock and roll... Where did rock and roll start, right? How, yeah. does, how does that begin? That's a great question. And so, is it a song? Is it an act? Well, one way that uh, a documentarian looked at it was not a particular band or a particular song, but um, recording studios where they could all go. Because rock and roll was a thing that nobody had heard of before, yeah. right? So where could you go if you were a scruffy dude and you wanted to record your music? Well some scruffy recording studio. Yeah, nice. And so they picked five recording studios where the fathers of rock and roll did their recording through the research that they did. So they used Cosimo Matassa Studio down in New Orleans, right? They had uh, Petty's, Norman Petty's studio out in um, Clovis, New Mexico. Sounds weird, but I'll explain yeah. in a minute. Okay, <laughs> sweet. <laughs> then you had uh, Memphis, uh, Stax Records, you had Sun Records, and you had Chess Records. So you had Chicago, Memphis, um, what's the other city in tennis? Nashville. Oh, yeah. Um, and so they picked those five studios because Cosimo Matassa recorded Little Richard, Fats Domino, nice. Professor Longhair, uh, the guy who wrote uh, a whole lot of shaking going on, um, nicknames Killer That Guy, and all these. Things, all, <laughs> and that's yeah. just one. Stu that's that's the only place they could go. That's oh, okay. Sun I got Studios you. recorded. It was originally race music that was recorded by Sam Phillips there. So great, great people from that area. But he recorded Elvis Presley, 
He recorded Johnny Cash. He recorded um, uh, Billy Lee Riley and all these people. And so, Sun Records was the one in New Mexico? No. Oh, that's, okay. That's Clovis. That would be uh, Norman Petty's studio. Oh, okay. So he recorded all the guys from West Texas. Oh, okay. So he recorded people, I don't know, Roy Orbison and uh, yeah. uh, a guy, Buddy Holly, you may have heard of him. I have. I've heard of him, uh, yes. Crickets without Buddy Holly sometimes, too. So all these guys. And then um, Stax Records recorded, like, Booker T and the MG were the house nice. band. They were the house band. Yeah. So they recorded everybody else. And so Isaac Hayes came through there. Anyway, so early on, they were the inventors of, of that of the sound that eventually became rock and roll. If you ask DJ Fontana, Elvis's drummer, you know, he goes, well, we were just playing music. We didn't call it rock and roll, but I guess that's what it was. And a lot of guys will tell you that. A lot of the old guys say, hey, we're just playing music. We didn't give it a label. We didn't give it a name. I'd be happy playing jazz. I'd be happy playing R&D, cowboy western tunes, or, or what you call rock and roll. Yeah. It was all good. They just we, wanted to play. Yeah. They just wanted to play. And Interesting. So and so that's how they, this particular documentary, established the concept of where the origins of rock and roll were. And really, you could even narrow it down a little bit further by saying it was Nashville's 50,000 watt um, antenna. You could say that it was whatever, WG, whatever that right. is. Because it covered all the way around, you know, a huge what, 200 mile area? So it went down into Arkansas where Johnny Cash could hear it. Oh. It went up out into East, into Pittsburgh yeah. and beyond, you know. Uh, into Kentucky and all that. All that. Yeah. So people would come to play the Grand Ole Opry. That's the first thing at Elvis did. Oh yeah, Grand Ole Opry, he, yeah. He auditioned for the Grand Ole Opry I've and been didn't there. get in. Nice. Mm -hmm. And he didn't get in, but he started making rock and roll instead, so. Very cool. Well, so one little quick thing, Alan, about the uh, design of the EMP. It was okay. very controversial, at, and maybe it still is, but some people love it, some people hate yeah. it. So some people what's think the deal? The deal was is that Paul Allen was looking for somebody to build his museum, and he thought of Frank Geary, because Frank Geary at the time, in the um, mid-90s, was the hottest thing walking. Mm -hmm. He had the Bilbao Museum and the... Uh, Op, you know the opera house and all these places to show his style which was curvy and what he called what Paul Allen termed as swoopy 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 and so he right. liked it and so he had uh, the, the thing designed a few changes were made and what you see now is and it only works if you're up looking down on it from the top of the space needle that's where you have to be because you look down on it and there you could see what looks like a neck of a guitar with strings kind of wanging out in all ah. directions. And the shape of the uh, metal looks like the sound waves pouring out from the guitar, from the guitar. Cool. But that's the only place it works. Now it's made up of three different sections. It used some advanced technologies that before they were available, you couldn't have built the building. So we used a lot of swoopiness. So you've got all these beams and, and, and steel that's not girders and straight and all that stuff. It's all bent and things. And so they used an engineering program used by France to create their, their Phantom fighter jets. 
in France. Yeah, yeah. it's called yeah. the Katia program, and so that's what they used to, to, to develop the uh, shape of the museum so that it wouldn't fall down. Yeah. And then Geary likes concrete, he likes corrugated uh, papers, and he also likes to have um, hidden windows and light uh, from these windows coming in and around and through, light up on something, you know, yeah. whatever. So. He built this museum, and the Paul Allen came in, looked at it, and said, you know what? I built it too small. <laughs> Should have been bigger. So it's got areas in it that are not available to the public. They have included some areas that weren't originally available to the public. They were downstairs in the basement where all the people were headquartered who worked in the museum. And they decided to convert that into gallery space. That's where the horror and the science fiction gallery are now. Oh. Does that answer another question about the building? Yeah. No, this is good. Cause oh, another thing, too. This is, is things I didn't know about. Right. The, you have and to go up to the space. Yes, it'll make exactly. sense when you look down. Now I want to do that. But it's in three parts. <laughs> Me so too. That one swoopy part. But there's also a column part, and that's where Sky Church is. And that's just straight up. It's just a gallery. It's just a... A gallery space for for bands to come in and play. Perform, yeah. So it's a performance space next to the exhibit space. There's also a, a movie theater, the JBL theater in there. Oh wow! There is upstairs, which you can't see from the floor. Upstairs above Sky Church is the Blue Room. And that's where Paul and all of his buddies would hang out and watch all the shows in privacy with their with their pate de foie gras. Holy cow! Yeah, I didn't know about the blue room. That's no for one sure. knows about the blue yeah. room. I've been in the blue room many times. Wow! And there's also a big giant room for all of the electronics and all the guts and all the hardware. You know where all the guys, all the those guys hang out. Yeah. And it's amazing. It, it, it almost looks like. A scene from Frankenstein with all oh, the really? apparatus and all the things going on there. You walk down. Right, he's building his monster down there. Yeah. And the concrete walls. And so there's space there. That is, and then there's another blue room, the green room. And that's downstairs, right next to JBL Theater. And that's where the artists freshen up or, or refresh themselves yeah. before they come out to perform at JBL. And the JBL Theater has all of the, oh, so, but the skin of the outside of the building is not waterproof. It's not, you know, all those, all that shiny metallic, yeah. that's a skin, but it's not the outside of the building. That's underneath. The skin is for show. And all of those pieces, they're all different shaped. There's not, there's thousands of them, and not two of them are the same. Wow. So you have that going for you. Yeah. And so uh, one of the things I got for being a volunteer, for being, an, no, for being an original member, is I got a little piece of aluminum like this big. Oh, of the skin. Of the scale, of the skin. Yeah. So I've got that. And then they had a book um, of all the stuff that was originally in the museum when it first opened called Crossroads. And so that I have as a historic piece of the museum showing yeah. what it what it held originally. It's changed over time and things all the galleries have changed over the years and they've held many, many different things. You, from Hello Kitty, you know, to they've always got a permanent Hendrix gallery. 
but they used to have a punk gallery. Yeah, I remember that. They had a, um, a gallery just for uh, Eric Clapton, just for Janis Joplin, just for Bob Dylan. Mm. Nice. Um, right, and they had a little part called Origins, which talked about what's the first rock and roll song, and they went through the various artists back in the day, from Louis Jordan, you know, to Wanda Jackson and all these people. And yeah. Wanda Jackson played there once, for God's sake. You know? wow. And so that's that's EMP. And then it changed to add the Science Fiction Museum. Then they opened up the bottom space and put in the Science Fiction and Horror Galleries much later. And they kept changing their focus. They wanted to be more relevant to the community rather than just being housing old Northwest rock and roll. So they, they pulled that gallery out, out, which was a piece of my heart. I loved that gallery. Um, it was my childhood. It was one of the things that brought me into EMP was the, um, when I was a little kid, my mother had the radio on, KJR. You, weren't, you didn't live here, but I did. Right. And so I would hear all these bands. Lots of music. Some of the damnedest things I've heard. Um, when I was little, I remember hearing Please Please Me by the Beatles on the radio. And it was when we first moved into our old house, which was 1963, late 1963. Nobody believed me. That wasn't, they didn't play that in America. That first song was, I Want to Hold Your Hand. I go, no, please, please me. Many years later, I was friends on Facebook with one of the original DJs of uh, KJR, um, who'd been a DJ for 50 years, Pat O'Day. All right. And he told a story on Facebook, and he had the little picture of the acetate of receiving from VJ Records out of Chicago, not from Capitol Records, because this was before Capitol Records deal with the Beatles. Oh, so right. VJ Records, a single, an acetate single of Please Please Me, which he played in December of 1963. Nice. Wow. So I remember, and, and that's what I heard, and I, I got proof of it. So the first Beatles I'm song not crazy. played in America was Please the Please Me? The one that I heard. Oh, that you heard. Okay. Please Please Me. Yeah. And it wasn't I Want to Hold Your Hand. Yeah. That was the first Capitol release. Yeah. All right. Now you know. Yeah. I love it. And so why is Louie Louie like the state's song or whatever? Way back in the day, a guy named Rockin' Robin Roberts. Rockin' Robin Roberts, yes. who was in a band called The Whalers. Nice. And they were from Tacoma, and they came up and played the circuit up here. He, now back then, this is like 19, must be 1958, 59, the, there was no I-5. It hadn't been built yet. It hadn't been finished yet. So he took 99, the Coast Highway, 101, all the way down to L.A., which was an arduous kind of journey. Yeah. What you have going on back then were regional styles of music because people didn't travel. They didn't go on airplanes. You could, you could go by train or you could take the roads. And so he just went through bins and record stores to, to, to find songs. And he found Richard Berry's Louie Louie, which is a Calypso beat song. Almost doo-wop. Oh, okay. And so he brought, he loved it, and brought it back up to Seattle, and they got the beat wrong, they, right? So the beat changed, and the chords changed. <laughs> so it became A, 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 D, D, E minor, 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 D, D, 
A A A D. So it's oh, idiot proof. Yeah. How do you screw that up? <laughs> a A A D D E minor 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 D D. Right. So, but it was a. It's so simple. Yeah. So, simplified. Yeah. And so they played it, and their version opened with a saxophone. Ron Gardner. No, not Ron Gardner. He was later. Which sounded like the original record from Richard Berry. Then um, you have Rich Rich Dangel on guitar, and he was an awesome guitar player. Nice regional guy. He didn't you know before Hendrix and after um, Chuck Berry, and his style was not Chuck Berry. His style was a little different. And so the Whalers put that song out. Everybody loved it. Everybody jumped on it to record it. But they all recorded it the Wailers way. Nobody recorded it the original way. And so you had different people. The Kingsman got a hold of it and made their great version in a uh, garage almost, little studio, with one dangling microphone in, in Portland. And um, you had Jack Ely singing straight up in the air into the microphone above his head and all the band. And if you listen to that carefully, um, after this, the second verse and before the second chorus, the drummer yells, Oh, fuck! <laughs> and if you listen for it, you'll hear it and you'll never miss it again. Oh, really? It's in there. Fuck! <gasps> nice. You'll never miss it again. All right, it's everyone. It's one of those little, little things. I'm going to check that, that out. Yeah, go find that swear word. Yeah, it's, yeah. and it's funny. And so um, everybody played it. And so then the Sonics come along. Yeah. From Tacoma, and they were, uh, they played their version of Louie Louie. And they didn't use A, 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 D, D, E minor, minor, minor. They used uh, Larry Paripa's monster guitar that sounds like somebody's kickstarting oh. a motorcycle. Oh, wow. And so I don't know what Cordy's playing, I have no idea. All <laughs> I know is it's aggressive, yeah. and it scared people. It'll, it's his version will change your life, according to a friend of mine <laughs> who plays with REM. Ooh, all right. Yeah, so that's <laughs> that's a story too. Because the first day that EMP opened, they had a big party. Yeah. They had a big paid concert in the Memorial Stadium, and then they had a free concert at the uh, Mural Amphitheater. I went to the Mural show because it was the Wailers, the Ventures. Um, Paul Revere and the Raiders and all those old bands. Oh, I love them. Yeah, so I thought that was cool. And it was going back to my childhood. It was For me, it was very nostalgic. Yeah. And so I'm listening to the bands play and the Wailers are on stage and I see my friend Scott McCoy, who yeah. is the lead guitarist, no, the lead singer and rhythm guitar player for the Young Fresh Fellows, which is a band from here. And then he we went on. We saw them at that. YFF, yeah. At the place in Georgetown. Well, I saw you, yeah. Yeah. Tiny Slims or whatever it's called. Yeah. No. Whatever it's called. I forget what it's called, but I yeah. hope it's called Tiny Slims. That's no, a great name it, for it a bar. It wasn't Tiny Slims, but it was something, <laughs> something like, like that. Something like that. It was something weird. Anyway, so I hope it's still there, but yeah. So, yes, it is. And, I, and so I've, I've been seeing old Scott. In fact, I knew Scott from before he was even in a band. He came up from San Francisco and was working at Cellophane Square record store in the U District. And I'd go in yeah. there and he'd be there. 
So I remember I saw I see him walking across the infield of Mural's Amphitheater. I waved at him and said, "Hey, Scott, long time no see. How you been? I hear you moved to Portland. How's your record collection? Oh, it just keeps getting bigger. I can't stop myself. Nice. Sometimes I got eight different copies of the same record, but I need them all. Oh shit! And all this, so we're just 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 yakking. Yeah. And then the waiter started playing Louie Louie. And he goes, and I go, that's my favorite version. He goes, no, mine is the Sonics, man. Because it's evil. That's where it is. Because it's evil. Nice. It just sounds, it scares people. Anyway. All right. Well, I'm going to check out both of them. So, yeah. So, he's, he walks away, and, and I'm listening to the, he had to go. He had just come from the, from the other show, because he was in a Sonics cover band. <laughs> See? They had Mark Arm on vocals, and they had uh, Scott on keyboards. So, and all these other guys in the rock and roll scene yeah. covering Sonic's tunes. So wow. he just come from that. I didn't even, I didn't know at the time. I found out later. And so then I, I, there's this kid who's bored and his dad's having a great time. The kid doesn't know anything. Oh, kid, you like R.E.M.? Goes, yeah. Goes, well, that was their keyboard player. Like, what? 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 Right. Well, that's <laughs> right. So, nice. and, and you know, so Scott, and you saw him then. You saw Scott, the guy with the sunglasses inside. At Slim's Last Chance? Slim's Last Chance, that's what it's called. Yes, I just yeah. looked it up. Slim's Last it, it Chance. It is yeah, Slim's Last Chance. chance. Yeah. It's just a freaking hole in the wall, yeah. weirdo place. Yeah, it's yeah. got a weird dance floor. What a show, though. That's it's fun. not really set up that well for Nick, music. Had you seen them before? But it was awesome. Had you seen YFF before? No, but they, they were fellas. amazing. Don't you think? Yeah. Young I, Fresh Fellows and YFF. And what well, they're the same band. What? No, oh, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, of, course, so of course. But what was the other band that was there that night? I don't remember. I was it super was, impressed it by was them. It was one guy, wasn't it? It was one guy who blew me away. Yeah, he was He was uh, something else. He was an old guy. Oh, wow. With a hat. And uh, he'd been in the scene. He'd been in the scene and then out of the scene for like 30 years. And they mm. brought him back. We have to oh, remember like who that revival. is. He was his revival show. Yeah. It was killer. And he was he was great. He was great. Young the Fresh Fellows were great, but yeah, the fellows I'd left seen, by then. I've seen Young Fresh Fellows a few times. You had, okay. But then Where? this other guy. I, Where the hell would you have seen him? Because <laughs> they broke up. I saw them way back in the day at the, what, whatever the. No, no, it wasn't the tractor. There was the a blue what's, moon or what's the other blue, place in Ballard? That no, was in, in Ballard. Ballard. Yeah. The, uh, Not the tractor. The uh, uh, backstage. There the we backstage. go. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Uh, they they played the backstage. And they had the tinfoil hats and stuff. Well, Tad would. One thing that they didn't bring to that show in, at, at Slim's Last Chance was Tad's frying pan. Mm. Remember the frying pan? He yeah. used to hang a frying pan yeah. with his drum kit. Yeah. He didn't bring his frying pan. I told he I asked drum him. drum on a frying pan? Yeah, of course. Of course. Oh. That's Tad. You have to know him. So Apparently. I, before the show started, they came in to set up. And I saw them setting up. And I go, I asked him, I go, Tad, did you bring your frying pan? He goes, no. I go, what? It's not the same. Look, I know I can't find it. <laughs> you can't find it. <laughs> because oh, no. it was set up. I mean, it had a, you know, the hook on it and the string and all. So yeah. And he couldn't find it. So, okay, well... That's life. Yeah. But yeah, so YFF, the fellas. So at one point, uh, they, they've gotten back together to do a uh, charity show. And so I went around to people I knew saying, at work, saying, the fellas are getting back together. They're going to play a show with El Corazon. Nice. And they went, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? You know, uh, 
never mind. We have one of the guys in the front office, one of the big wigs, used to play bass in a punk band in the 80s. So I went to him and I said, um, the fellows are going to play, got back together, they're going to play at the El Corazon. He said, what time? Nice. Which is the right answer. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> when? What time? <laughs> I'm sorry, Carmeg the Forest. Oh, yes. There, yes, yes. That's, that's the, guy. the name of the artist, Carmeg the Forest? <laughs> that played yeah. with the Young Fresh Fellows at Slim's Last Chance. Yes, oh. yeah, that's correct. Yeah, he made a new album, I think, after like 30 years or something. Yeah, I thought he killed it. I was very impressed with Carmeg the Forest. And who, who, and who knows who Carmack DeForest is? Well, we do now, thankfully. Yeah. Well, I'm not feeling good. Oh, okay. Oh, Alan, I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm going to go home. Sorry. No, no worries. Thank you. We, I mean, you shared wonderfully. <laughs> I hope you feel better. Alan had to step out, having a bit of a coughing fit from some truffle popcorn. And uh, Darlene is not entertaining me with her Janis Joplin I facts. Think it was 1969. So you were 11? <laughs> Very funny. They were giving you whiskey at 11? Uh, I, I don't think I was of drinking age, but. Uh, but you were drinking. <laughs> oh. but, you know, I had fake ID. From so me. that's where Bakes got it from. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> oh, fuck, man. It doesn't say. Okay, right. why can't I Google when did she play at the Hampton? Beach Casino, and it doesn't just pop up. What's wrong with that? Maybe it was a secret show. Oh, no, here it is. It did. I just made a typo or something. Uh-oh. July 11th, 1969. So it was, a year I gradu- it was a year before I graduated from high school. Because uh-huh. I graduated from high school in 70. Graduated from college in 74. So, um, yeah. Nice. It was... Um, so you just turned 18. I don't Janis think, Joplin was I, in town. I wasn't 18 yet, Ooh, actually. Ooh, 17. Yeah. And um, I just really loved Janis Joplin, and so I had to go see it. And... Um, so you, yeah. were a, you were a fan of whiskey from the get-go. Oh, yeah. Young age. Oh, yeah. 17-year-old. Yeah. Mama Bakes. Yeah. Out on the hunt for good music and whiskey. Oh, always. Always. <laughs> I love it. All right. I have a thing. I have a thing. Yeah. I got a thing. You got, got a thing a, for whiskey. Not a thing, thing for, for men, but a thing for whiskey. Well, kind of both, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but whiskey's probably easier. Easier. Yes, yeah. whiskey's easier. Yes, Indeed. it is. <laughs> That's it for this episode of Genre Neutral, the only podcast that prospects the depths of sound and artistry for dope gems that inspire. Connecting you with new cultures, fresh music, and the most hyphy perspectives on life. I'm your host as always, Duckman. Thank you for joining us on this journey. Be sure to check out Genre Neutral on all social platforms.